Well, we are looking again at the subject of a whole new world. And we began this passage last time, but we only got down to verse 3. Tonight we're going to try to get down to verse 8. And as we saw last week, the eternal home for the saints is revealed to us in Revelation chapter 21. And throughout the history of the church, God's people have rightly been preoccupied with the glories of heaven. The true saints of God have longed for that eternal state, primarily because they have understood that this world is not our permanent home. We are strangers and exiles on the earth. We desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Paul wrote that our citizenship is in heaven, and to the Colossians he wrote, If then you have been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your affection on things above, not on things that are on the earth. It is very important for Christians to have a heavenly perspective, an eternal orientation. And that's why this is such an important chapter. And really, the rest of the book is going to be dealing with this issue of the eternal state of the saints. And uh, we read it last week, but I want you to turn with me to Revelation 21. And uh, let's look at verses 1 through 8 again tonight. And let's just read through it, and then we'll come back and look at it in more detail. And I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth passed away, and there is no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he shall dwell among them, and they shall be his people, and God himself shall be among them. And he shall wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there shall no longer be any death. There shall no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. And he who sits on the throne said, Behold, I'm making all things new. And he said, Right, for these words are faithful and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give to the one who thirsts from the springs of the water of life without cost. He who overcomes shall inherit these things, and I will be his God and he will be my son. But for the cowardly and unbelieving and abominable and murderers and immoral persons and sorcerers and idolaters and all liars, their part will be in the lake that burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. Now, last time uh, we saw, first of all, the coming of the new world. Uh, So look with me again at verse 1. And I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth passed away, and there's no longer any sea. We're not going to spend a lot of time on this, but as a quick review, I believe we should take this literally. 
The Apostle Peter said of this promise, uh, according to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. I just believe we should take this at face value and let the text say what it says and believe that there's going to be a brand new earth and there's going to be a brand new heaven and that it is going to be very different from this present world in which we now live. It is the clear teaching of Scripture that this world in which we live will one day go up in smoke. And that's why we must always remember that everything in this world is temporary and we must not get too attached to anything in this world. Someday, someday all of this is going to go away. And God is going to replace all of it with something brand new. Now, the word for new in verse 1 does not really emphasize chronology as much as it emphasizes quality. The new world that God will create, create is one that is going to be completely untainted by sin. It's going to be a perfect world that someday we will, who those of us who are redeemed, will live in. Uh, before we move on, though, I got several questions about which heaven it is that's going to pass away. Uh, you probably know that the Bible mentions three heavens. There are three different heavens mentioned in Scripture. The first heaven is the atmosphere that surrounds the earth. The second is what we would usually refer to as outer space with the planets and stars and galaxies. The third heaven is the place where God dwells. The place where Paul was carried to in the Spirit. And the place that John has written about throughout this book. So which of the heavens will be destroyed? Well, I think we can safely say that the first one will be and that the third one will not be. So we can start there. We can say that safely. The second one might be... But I'm guessing it won't be because it's not tainted by sin. So my answer would have to be that this is likely pointing to the first heaven, the atmosphere that surrounds the earth. That's what's going to be destroyed. This is another way of saying that the earth and its atmosphere will be destroyed. Of course, we can't be dogmatic about that because the text isn't specific but I believe the reference to heaven here is the first heaven. Well, secondly, we saw the capital of the new world. Look at verse 2. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. The new Jerusalem is going to be the home of all the saints of all the ages. And the metaphor of a bride adorned for her husband tells us this is going to be the most beautiful place that has ever existed. We really cannot even begin to fathom how beautiful the heavenly uh, Jerusalem is going to be. It will be a holy city because all those who dwell in it will be holy. It will come down out of heaven from God. 
And Hebrews 11.10 talks about the city whose architect and builder is God. This is that city that God is building that will descend into that perfect new earth and new heaven. Thirdly, we saw the centerpiece of the new world. Look again at verse 3. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he shall dwell among them, and they shall be his people, and God himself shall be among them. It won't be the streets of gold that we will be thinking about in heaven. It won't be the mansion that he has prepared for us. The constant focus of our attention will be the one who has redeemed us. We will be eternally consumed with the awesome reality of being in the very presence of Almighty God. And the most important thing about this city will be that God will dwell there and that we will be in His presence and that we will see Him face to face. That is what will make heaven, heaven. That is the greatest glory of heaven. The supreme joy and glory of heaven is the person of God Himself. This is the theme of this entire section, really, which serves, as we're going to see, as an outline for the rest of the book. And we'll see that at the end of our time tonight. But the amazing revelation here is that God will be eternally present in that place. But I want us, all that's just review, but I want us to move on now to a fourth reality, and that is the conditions of the new world. The conditions of the new world. Look with me at verse 4. And he shall wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there shall no longer be any death. There shall no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. All the causes of our present mourning and pain and suffering and crying will be gone forever. All the first things, all the former things, those things connected with the old earth and the old heaven will have become passed away at this point. There won't be any more funeral homes. There won't be any hospitals. No more broken homes or battered women or abused children. No more war or bloodshed. No more disease or suffering of any kind. In fact, I challenge you to take your Bible and go home tonight and go through chapter 21 and 22 and count how many times you see the phrase, no more. It's all over the place. No more, no more, no more. Death will be gone, and so will its painful shadow, mourning. Both Satan, he who had the power of death, and death itself will have been cast into the lake of fire. The greatest enemy of mankind will be a thing of the past. No more death. This is God's heavenly hanky as he wipes away every single tear 
The glorified, sin-free bodies of the saints will never, ever again be subject to pain of any kind. John MacArthur says, Heaven will be so dramatically different from the present world that to describe it requires the use of negatives as well as the previous positives. Now, we don't often think about that, but the negatives will be just as important as the positives to us. Not only do we need to see the incredible aspects of heaven, we also need to be reminded of all the pain and suffering that will not be a part of it. Alan Johnson explains that the negative description of future conditions, in a sense, is easier because finite humans, accustomed only to an old earth earth ravaged by sin, are void of experience in an ideal environment such as the new creation will be. In other words, we really don't have any context to understand the positive aspects of heaven because we have never experienced anything like what it will be. But we can relate to the negatives because we have experienced firsthand the painful curse of our fallen world. Of course, death, sorrow, crying, and pain, all that stuff entered the world in connection with the fall of man and the coming of sin into the world in Genesis chapter 3. So their removal here represents the reversal of the curse of sin. This is where the curse is finally removed. By the way, there are a few Bible commentators that claim that the phrase, he shall wipe away every tear from their eyes, is a reference to weeping over the sins which are judged at the judgment seat of Christ. I don't believe that's the case. This does not mean here that the people who arrive in heaven are going to be crying, and therefore God will have to wipe the tears away from their eyes. That's not what this is saying. This is simply saying there will not be ever any reason for crying in heaven because it's going to be a perfect environment. Besides that, we know the Bible declares that there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, Romans 8, 1. And the purpose for the judgment seat of Christ is to dispense rewards, not to judge sin. Our sin has already been judged at the cross of Christ. Well, in verse 5, we have kind of a summary of this new condition. Look at it. And he who sits on the throne said, Behold, I'm making all things new. And he said, Right, for these words are faithful and true. The phrase, all things new, describes not only the spiritual transformation of the believer, because we know that that's taught in Scripture. If any man is in Christ, he's a brand new creature. All things, the old things have passed away. Everything's become new. But that's not only true of the believer. It also describes here the literal transformation of the world at the end of time. In particular, in this context, he's speaking of the new heavens and the new earth. 
The one who sits on the throne is the same one we saw back in chapter 20, verse 11. This is God in His fullness, both the Father and the Son, as well as the Holy Spirit. He will make all things new. This won't just be a refurbishing of the old. This will be a brand new creation in the very same way that when we are regenerated by the Spirit, there is a brand new creature. And along with a new world will come a completely new way of life. Uh, Now, we know this because we have some hints in Scripture. For example, Jesus said in Matthew 22, 30, in the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like the angels in heaven. And even though there are some who have joked that this is the reason why there'll be no more crying in heaven, uh, others have bemoaned this statement. But the truth of the matter is that even though Christian marriage is a wonderful thing in this life, in heaven it will be replaced by something even better. It'll be a brand new way of life in heaven. And, you know, we really don't need to fret about that. We just need to trust the Lord that what we will experience in the new world will be even greater than all that we have in this one. And notice that God tells John to write these things down. Verse 5 says, he said, write, for these words are faithful and true. Alan Johnson says, possibly in the midst of all that was happening, bewilderment overcame the prophet, and he forgot to write down his visions according to his original command. I personally believe this is simply the Holy Spirit's way of emphasizing the truthfulness of this revelation. It's as if he's saying, you can count on all of this taking place. You can write it down as absolute truth. It will occur. Fifthly, we see the completion of the new world. Look at the first part of verse 6. And he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. The phrase, it is done, reminds us of what Jesus said on the cross, it is finished. Just as Jesus' words on the cross declared the completion of the work of redemption, so these words declare the completion of the new worlds. The one who sits on the throne is qualified to declare the end of redemptive history and the beginning of the eternal state because he is the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. In other words, he is the first and last letter of the Greek alphabet and everything in between. And, of course, Jesus Christ is identified that way in the opening chapter of this book. And we saw that in chapter 1 and verse 8 and in verses 17 and 18. This emphasizes the role not only of God the Father, but also of God the Son here. And really, all three persons of the Holy Trinity are eternal, but following the declaration of the completion of the new worlds, we have things related to the covenant of the new world. Look at the last part of verse 6. I will give to the one who thirsts from the spring 
of the water of life without cost. Have you ever been so thirsty that you thought you might die if you didn't get something to drink? You've probably experienced something like that. And then when you finally get something to drink, do you remember what that feels like? The quenching of thirst is one of the strongest physical needs we have. And you can't paint a better picture of what heaven will be like. Every one of our deepest desires will be met. Every longing of our hearts will be completely fulfilled. Everything that men have pursued in this life to satisfy the longings of their hearts will be supplied abundantly by those springs of life. I mean, listen to the words of Psalm 1611. In thy presence is fullness of joy. In thy right hand there are pleasures forever. What a tremendous summary of the eternal state. Listen, you know, there are a lot of wonderful things that you and I experience in this life. In fact, we are blessed with much more than we deserve. But as you know, there are also a lot of heartaches and hurts in this world as well. And in this life, we suffer and groan. But in that life, we will be completely satisfied. What a glorious day that will be. Do you remember what Paul said in Romans eight eighteen? He said, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to even be compared to the glory that is to be revealed to us. The glory of heaven, the suffering, all the suffering of this world doesn't even begin to compare with that future glory. Paul understood that all the suffering of this present time are only a drop in the bucket compared to the glories of heaven. The suffering that often seems so painful to us now will be totally forgotten as we live in blissful joy for all eternity. And remember, our Lord used this same kind of language to describe this concept. When the Lord Jesus walked on this earth, He said to the people of His day, If any man thirsts, let him come to Me and drink. And he who believes in Me, as the Scripture said, from his innermost being shall flow rivers of living water. To the woman at the well who was drinking natural water, he said, Everyone who drinks of this water shall thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him shall never thirst. But the water that I shall give him shall become in him a well of water springing up to eternal life. Even in the Old Testament, in Isaiah 55, 1, we read, Ho, everyone who thirsts, Come to the waters, and you who have no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without cost. This is the very same idea. Springs of living water 
without cost. The psalmist put it like this, Psalm 42, 1 and 2, As the deer pants for the water brooks, so my soul pants for thee, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? Just being in the presence of God will be the fulfillment of this prophecy. All these prophecies will be ultimately and completely fulfilled in the eternal state. The promise made to believers is that their thirst will be completely satisfied forever. We will no longer thirst, but we will be satisfied over and above all that we could ever ask or think. We'll go on to verse 7. He who overcomes shall inherit these things, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. What an incredible promise. The phrase, he who overcomes, is of course reminiscent of the promises given by Christ in the letters to the seven churches in chapters 2 and 3. And as we have seen, this is simply another way of describing true believers. 1 John 5, 4 says, For whatever is born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Verse 5 goes on to make it absolutely clear. And who is the one who overcomes the world? But he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. True believers who have put their faith in Jesus Christ. These are the overcomers. And the promise here in Revelation 21.7 is the promise of inheritance given to sons. The Apostle Paul developed that theme in Romans 8, 15 through 17. For you have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you have received a spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And of children, heirs also, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ if indeed we suffer with Him, in order that we may also be glorified with Him. Very same idea. All who become sons of God do so through saving faith in Jesus Christ. In John 1.12 we read, But as many as received Him, to them He gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in His name. Apostle Peter added, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to His great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved for us where? In heaven. In heaven. Even in this life, we who believe in Christ are considered sons of God. We are true spiritual children of God. But only in that eternal state will this become an ultimate reality for us. The Apostle John put it this way in 1 John 3, 2, Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not appeared as yet what we shall be. We know that when He appears, we shall be like Him, because we shall see Him just as He is. 
As Romans 8.23 says, we ourselves having the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves grown within ourselves, waiting eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. The next time you hear yourself groan, you ever hear yourself groan? The next time you hear that, just remember the promise that we have here in Revelation 21.7. We are promised an eternity as a living, eternal Son of God. Oh, but in contrast to that, there's one last point that we're going to see for tonight. So finally we see the cast out from the new world. The cast out from the new world. Look with me at verse 8. But for the cowardly and unbelieving and abominable and murderers and immoral persons and sorcerers and idolaters and all liars, their part will be in the lake that burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. This confirms the consistent teaching throughout Scripture that God only sees two categories of people. There are believers and unbelievers. There are the eternal sons of God, and there are those who suffer eternally in hell. The list of sinners here recalls a similar list in 1 Corinthians 6, 9, and 10 that includes an enumeration of those who will not inherit the kingdom of God. So listen to this list. Or do you not know that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers shall inherit the kingdom of God. And there are similar lists in Romans 1, 28 to 32, Galatians 5, 19 to 21, 2 Timothy 3, 2 through 5, and in this book, Revelation 22, 15, the basic idea is that those whose lives have been characterized by these things show that they're not genuine, born-again, regenerated believers. You can't be a genuine believer and be characterized this way. Steve Gregg observes that the kinds of sins committed are eight in number, but those who commit them unite into a single group as reflected in the single article, the, that governs all eight descriptions. Now, we're not going to go through the entire list there in Revelation 21, but the first one, cowardly, seems to be in contrast to those who were courageous enough to refuse the mark of the beast and lose their lives. It comes from a word meaning, I fear, and it refers to those who renounce their faith in the face of persecution. In other words, the cowardly are those who buckle to fear and accept the mark of the beast. They're not genuine believers, and therefore, when the pressure comes to conform, they will not, they will uh, in fact do so. They will take the mark of the beast. Well, that's as far as I want to go tonight. But I want to, I want to end tonight with an explanation of how the rest of this book 
can be outlined. And one good way of looking at the rest of this book is to break it down by using verses 1 through 8 as an outline for the rest of it. Here's the way it breaks out. Verse 2 speaks of the new Jerusalem, and that is detailed in chapter 21, verses 9 through 21. Verse 3 deals with God dwelling with men, and that is detailed in chapter 21, verses 22 to 27. Verse 5a speaks of the renewal of the world, and that is expounded on in chapter 22, verses 1 through 5. Verse 5b contains the words, uh, these words are true and faithful. That is expounded on in chapter 22, verses 6 through 10. Verse 6a describes the work completed by the one who is the Alpha and the Omega, and that is detailed in chapter 22, verses 11 through 15. Verses 6b through 7 describe the final blessing of the water of life to all who thirst. And this is given in much more detail in chapter 22, verses 16 and 17. And finally, verse 8 mentions the final curse on the rebellious. And this is given more fully in chapter 22, verses 18 and 19. So that kind of serves as an outline for the rest of our study in this book, and we will take those one at a time over the next few weeks. Well, before we pray tonight, uh, I need to share something that is happening in the body that you need to pray for. Um, Our brother, Bob Kramer, uh, got a bad report on Friday, and uh, I talked to him today. He's uh, he's been feeling very run down lately, and the doctors discovered that his white blood account is very low. Uh, I don't know if they're officially calling this leukemia, and I know there are a lot of different um, you know, types and, and diagnoses there, so I, I hesitate to, to necessarily call it that, but we know that he's, he's got that issue, and he's meeting with his doctors Friday to try to determine what treatment they will use for this. But let's pray for Bob. Uh, God's given him a a long life, but we all love him. And uh, so uh, I know you will want to be praying for him. Uh, So I wanted to share that with you and pray for the doctors and for wisdom and and pray pray for Bob and for strength for him. Well, let's pray together. Father, we just uh, thank you tonight for... uh, these truths about heaven, uh, Lord, especially when we think of the frailty of this fallen world and we think of old age and we think of uh, weakness and disease, Lord, we are so grateful that uh, we have the assurance of the eternal state, heaven, forever, where there'll be no more suffering and no more uh, death and no more crying and no more pain. And Lord, tonight uh, our hearts are burdened, our hearts are grieved hearing about our brother. And Lord, we we know you love him, and Lord, we love him, and uh, Lord, we want what is best for him. And so Lord, we just pray that you would uh, be with him, supply his needs. Uh, Lord, I pray that you would supply 
wisdom to the doctors and they would know what kind of treatment they might be able to give. But Lord, we just pray that uh, your will would be done and your mercy that you would just allow Bob to remain among us. But Lord, we we trust you no matter what. You are sovereign over all. And uh, Lord, we know that all things in your hands and and so, Lord, we uh, trust that situation to you. Lord, we, uh, we also thank you tonight for our students. We thank you for the excitement that we sense from them. And, Lord, we thank you for all the, the lessons they learned at camp and uh, just the way their hearts were challenged. And, uh, Lord, we pray that all of us would, would just be open to your word and, and what you want to challenge us with. And, uh, Lord, I just thank you for John and for all of our uh, adults that work with our students and we pray for our students that they would stand firm in you as they go back to school and all these things but Lord uh, we thank you for the experience they had at, at camp so Lord we rejoice with them in that and Lord we just pray that you would help us to live for you this week and uh, to use every opportunity to redeem the time for your purpose and for your glory in Jesus name